Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to a very exciting episode. I'm hosting Manish Bapna, the president and CEO of the Natural Resources Defense Council, or NRDC. Manish is relatively new to NRDC, and he shares with us how the organization has been a leader in resilience planning and his vision for adaptation at the organization. We also talk about some of the other exciting work NRDC is doing in response to the climate crisis. I've done several other interviews with NRDC resilience staff. Those were streaming TV interviews and are now available on my America Adapts YouTube channel. You can find the links to watch those episodes in the show notes. The NRDC resilient staff participating in those interviews include Joel Scotta, who talks about flood reform. Anna Weber does an episode discussing why we need a National Disaster Safety Board. Juanita Constable joins me to discuss health effects of climate change and what can be done. And one of my favorite podcast guests, Rob Moore, discusses the National Flood Insurance Program. NRDC is definitely all over adaptation planning, and you'll learn a ton from their team. Okay, let's go talk adaptation with Manish Bapna, the president of NRDC. Hey, Adapters, welcome back. We are joined today by Manish Bapna. Manish recently took over as the president and CEO of the Natural Resources Defense Council, or NRDC. He joins us today to discuss how NRDC is adapting to the climate crisis. Manish brings a broad international perspective to this work, as well as a tremendous amount of energy and focus on it. Prior to joining NRDC, he was a top official at the World Resources Institute, where he helped organize the Global Commission on Adaptation, which was chaired by Bill Gates and the former UN Secretary, General Ban Ki-moon. Hi, Manish. Welcome to the show. Delighted to be here, Doug. All right. We are here to talk about adaptation and about NRDC and about your new there at NRDC, but I thought maybe we would get started just briefly. We're going to dig a little bit about the history of NRDC, but what is NRDC? NRDC is one of the leading environmental organizations in the United States around the world. been working on advancing the environmental agenda for over 50 years. Founded in 1970, kind of a toolkit that is premised on litigation, science, policy, and edgy advocacy. Really, a group of people characterized by passion, tenacity, commitment to getting real results on the ground. You just started there. How long have you actually been there at NRDC? Been, uh, just, just, just about three months. And I'm sure it's been a bit Quite of a time. It's a fire hose of information too, right? Learning. I mean, that's a lot of history that you're trying to pick up. So I, I'm sure. Rich 50-year history, a remarkable organization. We're about 750 people working across the United States, but also in India and in China. And the three things that we really focus on, climate, nature, and equity. And we bring that toolkit mix of carrots and sticks to creating change in those three areas. Well, we're going to talk a bit about what NRDC is doing on these issues. And we're talking a lot about adaptation, but I do want to learn more about you. So your previous position, what were you doing there? So right before I came to NRDC, I was the executive vice president to the World Resources Institute, which is a global research organization focused on issues of sustainability and international development. We actually kind of a sister organization of NRDC. A small known fact, Gus Spep, who founded the World Resources Institute with John Adams, founded NRDC. Oh, wow. Jonathan Lash, who ran WRI for 17 years, was spent his first 10 years at NRDC. Francis Beinecke, who ran NRDC for 15 years, spent a lot of time at WRI. So a real connection between the two organizations. 
So you also worked on the Global Commission on Adaptation. Can you give a little history on that? It's a relatively new entity, and I think a lot of people, myself included, like, well, this is a very encouraging development. What is it, and what's it supposed to be doing? This was kind of shortly after the Paris Agreement and Climate Change around 2017, 2018, a recognition that issues of adaptation and resilience were not sufficiently visible politically. There was a time during Paris where we got more attention on resilience on the global agenda, but shortly thereafter, people started focusing entirely again on mitigation. So we felt that there needed to be both an effort to elevate political visibility around adaptation, as well as a need to construct a global action agenda to advance resilience. So we spent a little bit of time and we put together a commission that, as you mentioned, was co-chaired by Ban Ki-moon, former UN Secretary General, Bill Gates, and Kristalina Georgieva, who is the current managing director, the head of the IMF. And we brought together about 30, 35 commissioners, heads of state, finance ministers, CEOs, mayors from around the world to do two things, to put together a flagship report to marshal the latest and best research on adaptation and resilience, and to endorse and put forward an action agenda around how to apply the recommendations in those in the report to a set of key economic systems. What, what does it mean for agriculture? What does it mean for water? What does it mean for infrastructure? What does it mean for cities? So both the study and the action agenda were two major outputs of this global commission. I'll be curious, as you st- you're you on NRDC longer and you're learning more about the domestic resilient agenda there at NRDC, but what other people are doing domestically, I have discovered the international adaptation scene and the domestic, they, they don't always fit very well. And I'm looking for interfaces where maybe there's going to be more collaboration. And I think you'll be in a unique position. Is that something you're even already thinking about? Absolutely. Because I, I mean, I think the if you think about what the barriers are to really advancing adaptation in a much, much more serious way, they're the same all over the world, whether it is around making risk more visible more quantifiable, whether it is the tragedy, the horizons, we focus on short-term things, but not long-term things effectively, whether it is around institutional fragmentation within government across different agencies between towns, states, nationally, internationally, whether it is around the fact that, you know, the climate impacts focus on those that typically have the least and have the least political voice and power. So we don't Like these issues are the same everywhere. And so as we think a little bit about the economics, how to integrate resilience or adaptation into decision making, how to think about financing adaptation, those issues are as true in the United States as they are in India or in Ethiopia. So there's a lot, I think, that we can do together. Interestingly, from this commission, one of my colleagues at the World Resources Institute who co-authored the report is the head of the adaptation team in the U.S. State Department. So this prepare agenda that Biden, President Biden announced a few weeks ago. If you look at actually the prepare agenda, it tracks the work we did in the Global Commission extremely well. So it's a great opportunity to see how to connect global conversations on adaptation with how the U.S. is looking at these issues. Before we talk about some of the impacts that NRDC is doing, I'm just, again, with you, your professional, I guess, educational background that got you here, I think a lot of us, there weren't degrees in adaptation or even climate change back in the day. We're, in some ways, we're generalists, but you become an expert in a certain area. And only now are we seeing universities start to offer these kind of programs. But what was your educational journey that got you here? 
Yeah, so I was a failed economist. I, I, you know, I was an engineer out of college, didn't do that very well. So worked for a couple of years in management consulting, went to graduate school, dropped out of an economics program and actually did a, a degree at the Kennedy School at Harvard and a business degree. But a lot of it was focused on political and economic development. And after that, I spent the first part of my career actually at the World Bank working on poverty issues, rural poverty issues. If you want to work on international rural poverty issues in Asia, Latin America, Africa, you get quite quickly into conversations around natural resources, water, land, forests, watersheds, and you get into issues of fragility, scarcity, how you manage these resources more effectively. So that was, you know, my first 10 years was focused on how to think about water resources management in South India, for example. That background, that economics and that development background is actually what adaptation is all about. It's really about smart development. It's about smart growth. It's about how you integrate risk into how you think about growth and development. And so that was actually quite relevant and informed a lot of my thinking and a lot of my passion for working on these issues of resilience. Excellent. So we're going to pivot here and talk about some of the impacts that NRDC has. I want to just go through maybe, and there's obviously a long list of things that you're doing, but some things that I wanted to highlight is that there was a, you know, a $97 million settlement in relation to what's going on Flint, Michigan, that I think just is a good example of the kind of work you're doing. Could you give some more background on that? I mean, a lot of that work was around lead pipes. The fact that in this country, we continue to have pipes in cities all around the country that are poisonous to children and a recognition that it has been taking us much too long to identify and find a political will and the financial resources to replace them. So a lot of the work that we did in Flint now also popping up in Benton Harbor and Newark and Chicago and various cities a recognition that this is a real, real problem. And so we're both pushing for standards, state and national commitments to getting lead out of our pipes. And we're actually quite excited about what we're seeing both in the infrastructure bill that was recently passed and signed by President Biden, but also in the Build Back Better Act, which has some additional money to actually support states in removing lead and replacing these lead pipes with pipes that are better for children, for families. So I want to get back to what, what the Congress is doing in a little bit, but let, let's talk. There's some extreme heat work that you're doing in India. You talked about that's one of the areas that you guys work. NRDC is really making a much, much more pronounced investment in adaptation and resilience. And we're doing that here in the United States on heat, on drought, on floods. We're also doing it in India and in China. In India, we had a very interesting body of work around heat at, in cities, as you know, India is a pretty hot country to begin with, and it's getting a lot hotter with climate change. And yet the, the emergency response and action plans had not been yet developed. There was a heat wave in a city in Gujarat, which is a state in Western India that killed over a thousand people about 10 years ago. And so we started working with that city to think a little bit about how to develop extreme heat action plans to help the city think about what it could do to reduce the impact of heat stress on its residents, on its workers. Worked really successfully in that city. Similar heat waves have happened since with deaths that are still 5, 10, 15, but orders of magnitude less than what they were before. So incredibly exciting. That has not only been useful in Ahmedabad in Gujarat, but that model has now been replicated in over 30 other cities across India. So that ability to think about how you pilot in a city replicate across multiple cities has been quite interesting. One of the interesting things, just, just to pick up on this, 
because we then worked with what would be basically the head of FEMA in India to think about how to replicate this work in other cities. And if I was in Glasgow for the COP26 for the International Climate Conference, and we brought together our Indian partners, including the head of the Indian FEMA, with California state officials hmm. over a three-hour lunch at a Lebanese restaurant on the outskirts of Glasgow. And we talked a lot about resilience. We talked about how California is facing extreme heat and drought, what India is doing, and whether there could be interesting exchange and lessons learned between what's happening in India and what's happening in California. So just a good example of both what we're doing elsewhere, but how we're connecting that with what's happening in this country. Well, what's really exciting in the United States that I've been following is that Miami, I think, hired the first chief heat officer in in the country. And I know Phoenix, I think, is about to hire. And so those kind of positions are coming online. So that I think extreme heat has been this huge issue and people haven't acknowledged it. So that's very encouraging that these things are happening. I want to ask you one of the really important things that NRDC is doing. It's probably fascinating for you is just when your legal strategy, the sort of the victories that you've had in, in courtrooms and such. Can you share a little bit about that? I mean, I think the role of litigation, when, when you think about NRDC, when people think about NRDC, the first thing that comes to mind are those are those are the guys that you want on your side when you want to sue someone for doing something wrong. And we got a great, great litigation team. And so not only are we looking hard at a variety of different cases that we're trying to fight, including on these issues such as Flint that we're taking up in various places around the country, but also thinking a little bit about how that helps inform rulemaking. So the litigation is useful to kind of play defense, but how do we actually play offense and get the right rules and standards in place? And so that that is kind of that capability that we bring to this discussion is both on that issue, but then also on, on setting the standards. Just to give one example around that, the working with OSHA on heat standards and trying to help them actually think a little bit about what kind of heat safety standard could best protect indoor and outdoor workers. That's an area where our lawyers can actually help think about how to help define those types of standards with OSHA. And we're actually quite excited about some of the early progress we've seen with them on that. Let's talk a bit about what you're doing on resilience and adaptation. I, we, we can't get too much into specifics, but some of the areas, and I've worked with your team there too at NRDC, but more broadly, what, what is the approach there at NRDC around those issues? You know, we're picking three sets of hazards that we're planning to get a lot deeper on. So floods, heat, and droughts. And in terms of floods, we've been doing quite a bit of work with the National Flood Insurance Program, which we have felt has for too long been stuck in kind of a 1970s kind of worldview of what flood risk actually has been. And so we, with some other partners, have actually petitioned FEMA and FIP to actually begin to update how they're looking at flood insurance. And we've seen some really, really positive response quite recently. They've actually agreed to review and revise a lot of their provisions. And so we're doing quite a bit of work with them on that. We've been working on standards, not just the OSHA standard on heat, but the Federal Flood Risk Management Standard, which was reinstated by the Biden administration, something that we thought was incredibly important. We have also been working quite a bit around agency plans in terms of how to actually integrate resilience into those agency plans. So there's a lot there kind of on floods. I mentioned a little bit around heat with OSHA and then around droughts, looking also about how to improve the efficiency of appliances. So working with DOE and other bodies to think a little bit about building codes and appliance efficiency standards that could help improve the efficiency of how water is used 
to better enable us to deal with trans situations. The other piece I would just mention that we're also looking quite a bit at is the international adaptation program for the United States, an area where there's been some pretty limited effort to date. Part of that is about financing for international adaptation. Many of you may know that Secretary Clinton back in 2009 made a commitment to the global community that the developed world would mobilize $100 billion for public climate finance. World, the international community, the developed countries haven't yet met that target, but are coming close to doing so. So part of it is getting sufficient money to the developing world. The other part is what you do with that money. And that is where this prepare agenda that the State Department that Biden recently issued is actually quite, quite relevant in an area that I intend for NRDC to engage a little bit more proactively moving, moving forward. You don't have to name names here, but my experience with other large environmental organizations when their climate agenda, some of it's top notch, but so much is focused on mitigation. And a lot of them actually don't really do anything on the adaptation side. And I find that surprising. So that's why I always obviously enjoy working with NRDC because it's it's important to you guys. But why do you think it still hasn't captured the imaginations of some of the larger groups? It's a, it's a great question. And I think to some extent, you know, it depends on your motivation for going into this space, into the environment, into climate. And if, if, if people is ultimately what we're thinking about, and if equity is an important lens through which you look at the mission of these types of organizations, then you have to recognize and understand that it's often those that are, have contributed least to the problem, whether it's within the United States or across the world that are uh, facing the brunt of climate impacts. And so earlier when I said NRDC is about climate, nature, and equity, it is a recognition that as you think about that, you got to think about what poor people, low-income communities, communities of color in this country that are on the front lines of climate impacts. And so it has to be in part about adaptation, about resilience. But the other piece of it we don't talk about enough is that this is just smart growth, smart development, smart economics. Any type of investment we make in resilience has such a high cost benefit cost ratio. We know that. We know that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And yet we fail to make those investments commensurate with what the risk would suggest. And so this is also a little bit, it's, it's just good economic sense. And so how we actually try to elevate attention and try to find out why we're not doing more of this is just something that I think is incredibly important for groups like ours. That's a nice transition to our next section here. And we're going to talk about you, so the visions of NRDC around these issues. And you had mentioned earlier, and these are these bigger, broader issues. And let's talk a little bit about the congressional approach. There's a lot of things happening right now, and you guys are following that very closely. And these could have huge impacts for both mitigation and adaptation. And so can you kind of more broadly talk about NRDC's approach with what Congress and I guess the, is doing around this? This is a make or break moment for the United States in terms of meeting both our mitigation and our resilience goals. So we have President Biden rightfully put forward a pretty strong, ambitious agenda on mitigation, 50 to 52% below 2005 levels by 2030, but also recognizing that resilience, environmental justice, making sure that the benefits of the transition of building resilience also are targeted to low-income communities, communities of color is absolutely critical. So what we see here now is a number of things that are taking place, both in terms of legislation, as well as in terms of regulation, 
that are about climate that we need to be thinking about. One, the infrastructure bill that was signed into law quite recently, fairly significant, contains you know roughly fifty billion dollars that could help support climate resilient infrastructure, and so that's important. It's part of the puzzle, but it's not the entire puzzle. Much of that money, think of it as kind of hard infrastructure. It's kind of looking at kind of bricks and mortar investments and making them more resilient. We now have this Build Back Better Act, which is much, much more significant in terms of climate, both on the mitigation side, but even on the resilience side. So we see this as a integrated joined up package. The mitigation side, we can talk a little bit more about, but there's very significant funding, over $300 billion for tax credits for the power sector, for transport, for homes and buildings that are needed. But it also contains some dedicated funding for resilience, including a lot of critical social infrastructure, soft infrastructure. So helping actually provide money for developing standards, providing money for floodplain maps that can help develop NFIP's approach to flood insurance, to flooding flood risk moving forward. So there's some really critical investments in the Build Back Better Act that we want to make sure also get passed and remain in the final legislation. So both of those pieces are critical. We're monitoring them both. Hope that the Build Back Better Act passes before the winter holidays, but if not, clearly early in the year and well before the State of the Union address in January. So that's a huge. But in addition to that, there's executive actions that are being taken just a couple days ago President Biden issued a pretty important order around basically sustainability and net zero for federal procurement. And we are also looking at what else needs to happen on the regulatory side in terms of clean car rules, clean methane rules, clean power plant rules, and so forth. There is a puzzle here of different pieces that all need to come together, both on the mitigation side and for the resilience side. Well, it is kind of exciting when the, at the highest levels of government, they make a priority around climate change. We went for a few years there where it wasn't funded or wasn't a priority. And it just, even though organizations like yours, you were doing really innovative work in the meantime, it just shows how important that leadership is and funding. And it, it drives a lot of thinking from other groups. So that's very encouraging. That's why this window is so important. I mean, after playing defense for so many years, we know that the, the path to 1.5 is pretty pretty precarious. Right. Coming out of coming out of Scotland, coming out of Glasgow and COP26, we are on a 2.4 pathway, right? Celsius. Now at Paris we were around 3, 3.5, so we're moving in the right direction, but we're far from the 1.5 Celsius pathway we need to be on. So we need to not only increase ambition, we also need to meet our targets. And that's why this moment where we need to use every tool in the toolbox to get us on that 1.5 pathway is critical. I want you to t- describe as you take over, like you're at NRDC now and you're thinking and you're learning, and I, I'm sure that's influencing, okay, where are you, you headed as an organization? But COP26 was this sort of unique time for you. It's just as you got started and you were talking about that meal you had, you had Lebanese food and you're talking about these things. How did that influence your thinking? Because you probably couldn't even predict how it might you know, help you think about as the head of this organization where you're going to start thinking about adaptation resilience more. I think there are a few things that really came out of COP26. One is that we're going to need to focus a lot on implementation, that what the world has done, what the country has done over the past few years has been about trying to 
focus on bold targets, on mitigation, on resilience. But we now need to make sure we actually deliver against those targets. So a really important part around implementation. The other piece that I think we also saw out of COP26 was around accountability. There were a lot of promises made, not only by countries, but one of the other big things that COP26 did, that the U.S. government did, were a variety of different side agreements or sectoral agreements on methane, on deforestation, finance, on fossil fuel finance. And all of these, it'll be important for the international community to hold governments, to hold companies accountable for delivering against those promises. So this point, both about implementation and accountability, become incredibly important. In that context, one of the things that did not happen sufficiently in COP26 was enough attention to equity and justice issues. When we kind of take a step back and think of where we are in the world, and you think about vaccine inequity, you think about the fact that the rich world can mobilize over 20 trillion in response to the COVID pandemic, but most of the developing world had very limited financial means. There is this need for climate to be much, much more forward-looking in terms of dealing with the impacts that are facing vulnerable communities and vulnerable countries around the world. And that's where a much, much stronger effort on adaptation and resilience is needed. That's true both globally, but it's equally true here in the United States. Okay, so as we wrap up this conversation, I do want to hear from you. So what's your thinking right now in the next six months, next 12 months, your vision around NRDC and adaptation resilience? And I know it's all integrated mitigations part of that, but what's your thinking now? What, what can people look forward to? I mean, I think we're going to be really focusing on a few key hazards and really building up a lot more critical capacity around flooding, around heat, around droughts. We're going to be working. It's going to be at the place-based, at the state level, at the federal level. We're going to be looking at litigation. We're going to be looking at science. So deploying our entire toolbox to this, but also increasingly looking at the international adaptation dimensions, both in terms of U.S. foreign policy, U.S. development policy, but also what we might be doing in India, in China, and other countries around the world. It is a sense that there is a window here with this administration to make some real advances that can lock in much, much more effective integration of climate risk in decision-making across a wide range of sectors in a way that we haven't seen before. So this is an incredibly important moment to lean in, to invest appropriately to help make that happen. Well, I encourage people to go check out NRDC and the work that you're doing on climate change. When anything flooding, I just go straight to some of your staff, Rob Moore. He's he's awesome. Like, look, what's what's the status? Because it seems like it's endless when they're ever going to make a decision on some sort of final rules. And I go to your team to kind of figure out what's going on there. But Manish, this has been a real pleasure to talk to you. And you guys are doing some fantastic work. And I wish you all the luck in the world as you just take off with what's going on there. We got a great team already working on this in the United States, but also in other countries. And I think what, you know, please do check them out. They're doing some phenomenal work. We're going to be building this out even more in the coming months and years. Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Manish for joining the podcast. I'm very encouraged by Manish's words and where NRDC is headed on resilience and adaptation planning. I already have a history talking to his staff. They are doing some really useful and innovative work. I wasn't exaggerating. When I want to know the status of flood policy, I check in with Rob Moore. 
And I'm also going to eagerly watch how Manish integrates his international adaptation background with the domestic focus NRDC has been doing. Stay tuned for that. Manish mentioned efforts by FEMA to improve land use rules, building codes, and flood mapping as part of the National Flood Insurance Program. This is an incredibly important effort, one that was prompted by a petition from NRDC and the Association of State Floodplain Managers. And if you want to dig into the specifics of this, I did an interview on Simpatico TV about the proposal and what it could mean to help protect homeowners and renters from flood damage. I will include a link to that episode and to FEMA's documents in the show notes. And don't forget to check out some of the other streaming TV interviews I did with his staff. Those links are in the show notes too, and they'll take you to the America Adapts YouTube channel. Subscribe to the channel, please. Okay, if you're new to this podcast and you're catching up on all things adaptation, definitely take a look in the podcast library. We have covered a lot of ground that will catch you up on many of the most important adaptation issues coming up. Managed retreat, climate reparations, climate impacts on the LGBTQ community, climate finance, national security, indigenous issues, legal implications associated with adaptation, and nature-based solutions to resilience. That's just scratching the surface. Definitely take a look at the podcast library. Also, if you're interested in having me speak at a public or corporate event, please reach out. Folks, I speak a lot and you will enjoy it. I've been doing some keynote presentations and they are a lot of fun. I share stories from the podcast and my own experiences in adaptation. You can contact me via the website americadaps.org. And for my regular listeners, podcasts rely on word of mouth. Please take a moment and plug America Daps on your favorite social media feeds. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and I always reshare if you connect to me. I can't stress enough how important word of mouth recommendations are for podcast growth. On that note, I love hearing from you. I've been getting a lot of it lately. So just say hi. If you have an idea for a guest, let me know. Or just let me know how you are involved in the field. Or if you're not and you still get value out of the podcast. Seriously, it's a highlight of my week hearing from you. And sometimes it leads to really cool things. I'm at americadapts at gmail.com. Send me an email. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.